Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, nationally board certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risely Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community, but at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about. If you wear your diabetes with shame and you're embarrassed by it, other people are going to see it as something that's embarrassing. If you wear it as, I wear this, I deal with this every day, and I rock it, they're going to see it as like, whoa, that's pretty impressive, right? And it's all about how you present it and all about how you think about it yourself and A quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the Reclaim Your Rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice. Please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet, insulin dosages, or healthcare plan. Welcome back to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. So in every niche space that you see today where there are hundreds of blogs and books and TikTok videos and Instagram accounts speaking on a variety of topics, there were the people who paved the way for everyone else to come up after them and document their own experiences and expertise. Today we have Ginger Viara on the show, one of the OGs in the online diabetes content creator space who started sharing her journey with type 1 diabetes all the way back in 2010. And she did through YouTube videos, Twitter, and freelance writing for a whole host of different diabetes outlets. Ginger has lived with type 1 diabetes since the age of 13 and also lives with celiac disease, fibromyalgia, and hypothyroidism. While she started out sharing a lot of how she managed her blood sugars during exercise because she was a former competitive powerlifter, Ginger's topics that she's written about over the years have ranged all the way from pregnancy to emotional eating to diabetes burnout. She is the impressive author of not four, not five, but six books for people living with diabetes, two of the most recent being picture books for young kids titled When I Go Low and Ain't Gonna Hide My T1D. This interview is so great for both T1Ds themselves and parents of kids living with diabetes. We talk about her experience with a doctor that ultimately led to her having to treat her diabetes as a science experiment. What she always tells parents of newly diagnosed kids when they are stressed about their child's A1C or high numbers, what a high and low blood sugar feels like for her, and how she sees these new books that she's created for kids making their way into bedrooms and classrooms across the country. So without further ado, help me introduce our guest of the day, Ginger Viera, and let's rise. We have Ginger in the house today. Ginger, welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Lauren. I love what you do and what you stand for. Thank you so much. I have to say, I think that you were one of the first people that like whose names like I ever knew in the diabetes online space. It was like you and Carrie's Spar- Sparling. Is that, I think yeah. that's how you say your last name. So you and Carrie and I were like, wow, like this mm-hmm. is so cool. Like they're writing all these blogs and about diabetes. And I think it was like when I was in college, I, I found you guys online yeah. and you, you really paved the way for like a lot of what's going on in the online space now. And 
it's like you walk so like people like me could run. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, and I really want to get into your background and we're going to talk about your, gosh, six, five, six books. Like you've done so much. But first I want to start with, can you share a story of a time that you reclaimed your rise with type 1 diabetes? Sure. So I've lived with type 1 for like 24 years. I was diagnosed at age 13. And after my first like two and a half, three years of college, I I was like, you know, I don't feel good. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm eating gluten, even though I have celiac. It wasn't like every day, but like if my friends were having pizza at a restaurant on the weekend, I was drinking pizza and Burlington's microbrew beers and lucky enough to get away with it physically that I didn't feel obvious symptoms, but obviously not good for me. And I gained weight. My A1C had gone up and I just was like, I don't feel good. And I, I, that summer between my junior and senior year of college, just started walking every day and going to the gym and trying to teach myself weightlifting and going to power yoga classes. And by the end of that summer, I had really become, I looked completely different. I looked fit, if you will. And I felt completely different. I felt empowered physically. And my A1C was back where, this is before the days of CGMs, back where I felt comfortable. And by the end of that summer, I was like, you know, I've taught myself what I think I can about weightlifting. And I hired a personal trainer and then actually fell into powerlifting kind of by accident. Um, and there's a, there's a point of reclaiming your rise here in a minute, I promise. Um, <laughs> and I started, I just committed like fully to learning intense weightlifting with him. And then also I was going to Ashtanga yoga instructor certification. And this was during the start of my senior year of college where I went for writing to Champlain college in Vermont. And after a few months um, of working with him, Andrew was his name, Andrew Barry. He does a lot of bodybuilding, but I wasn't interested in bodybuilding coaching. I um, really liked powerlifting. I grew up watching Arnold movies with my brothers. So like Arnold was like my hero. Um, Schwarzenegger, if anyone does. Oh, you don't have to say his last name. He's like Beyonce. Oh, he's, he's just like he's first name. In the, in the... I get his <laughs> newsletter. Like I subscribe. So <laughs> I love him. Um, and after a few months, I gotten really strong really quickly. And somebody said, you should compete in powerlifting. And we looked into the difference between intense weightlifting and competitive powerlifting and started training. But I was still struggling with my blood sugars around intense weightlifting, right? I was going to the gym every day, slow cardio because, um, you know, meatheads don't want to lose any of their muscles. So you don't do a lot of running around. You do lots of walking and then really intense training sessions. And I'd gotten up to being able to bench more than my body weight, which is kind of when you become competitive in powerlifting as a woman. And I went to, I didn't have any health insurance at the time. And I went to an endocrinology appointment, my first appointment with an adult endo versus the pediatric endo that I'd seen in New Hampshire where I grew up. And I was paying out of pocket for this. And I was really struggling with high blood sugars, not just around exercise, but the mornings after. And I needed help with one, fine tuning my insulin doses, but also learning how to just eat a more balanced diet. I was still struggling with emotional stress eating and 
not eating enough during the day and then eating way too much at night and then waking up with high blood sugars, right? Like, I mean, like high 200s, 300s, I don't recall exactly. But the doctor looked at that, my numbers and said, looks like you're uh, skipping your Lantus dose every night. And I was like, Hmm. no, I don't, I don't skip my insulin ever. I appreciate my insulin. And, but I'm trying to learn how to train in competitive powerlifting and I'm going to compete next spring. And he literally just laughed at me. And then said, well, you claim you're not skipping your insulin (laughs) as though I was lying to him and never acknowledged the powerlifting, literally laughed in my face. And I left the appointment in tears because I was really like as gung ho as a patient could be to learn and get support. Right. And all I got was being shamed for struggling and not even acknowledge. I wasn't acknowledged that I was struggling. I was just being shamed for not having perfect blood sugars. And so I cried after the appointment, paid a very large doctor's bill out of pocket, and then said, F that guy, and um, ended up getting hold of a friend's medical book on exercise physiology. He was a med student. And then using that with Andrew, my powerlifting coach, to really figure out a little more of the basic physiology. And I am not a science-minded person. I'm in college for writing, right? right. So that wasn't that. My point in saying that is it didn't come naturally to me. And I was able to learn enough to better understand what powerlifting does to my blood sugar, what walking on the treadmill after breakfast versus before breakfast does to my blood sugar. And this is now 15, 16 years ago in my early 20s. What I've learned today and, and what I love to teach people today about exercise is so much better and bigger and more specific than what I knew back then. But six months later, I competed in my first powerlifting meet and I set tons of records for my bodyweight class. And I benched 185 pounds at a bodyweight of 148 and I deadlifted 300 pounds and squatted 265 and I won the whole thing for the women's thing. Um, of that meet and set a bunch of records in that federation. And it would have been really cool to have a doctor supporting me in that. Right. But so I feel like I reclaimed my rise there and it actually gave me my niche going forward in the diabetes community because I really wanted to take that science that I'd learned as someone who isn't very good at science and help other people think of it in layman's terms and everyday diabetes management and apply it to their own diabetes. And, you know, I'm sure you hear all the time from people who are newly diagnosed as adults who are told, well, you can't go kayaking anymore and you can't, you just need to walk. It's the only Mm -hmm. thing that's safe for you. it's like, that is so not true. Um, Right. Well, that's a, that's a really important story to share. And thank you for, you know, taking us through that. And what's really interesting to me is I'm guessing, did that happen like early 2000s? Because you were diagnosed in 99, right? It was around 2000. Yes. 2007 to the, oh gosh, 2009 is when I first started competing. So 2008, 2009, 2000, I competed okay. till 2011. So like 12 ish years ago, um, 15 years ago, depending, you know, on the date. But what I find fascinating is over the years, technology has advanced so much, right? We have the CGMs Mm -hmm. and they're so much more accurate and you have closed loop and AI and algorithms and all these things. But the way that 
the doctor patient relationship has evolved, like it, it hasn't evolved much. And not to say that every single doctor, right, is, is representative of that story that you told, but I mean, we hear it all the time. Like I just put up a, an Instagram video the other day talking about how a woman who just joined one of our group coaching programs, she is 36 years old. All she's wanted to do is like have a baby. She, but she didn't have like a, she wanted to have a partner and be married. Finally finds the love of her love of her life, gets married this past December. Doctor says, whoa, 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 you can't get pregnant right away. Like your A1C is a 7.6, but don't worry. Like we'll help you in one month, get your A1C down to a six, which is like pregnancy level. So not only are the expectations that they set like totally out of right, like reality of what's possible and get her hopes up. But yeah. B, here we are six months later, her getting on an enrollment call with us and applying because she's like, my A1C has went up since that date. Oh. And they, everything that they said that it would help with, she was going to the doctor and they'd be like, well, exactly like you said, you must not be giving insulin for your meals, or you mm -hmm. must be counting your carbs wrong, or you must be doing this. And it's like, you feel that shame. And it's like, you're like, what, this must be a me thing. Right. But the difference of what you did in this situation was you were like, no, like I'm not, I'm not letting that this be the standard. I'm going to reclaim this moment right now. And I literally have chills because it's like, by doing so you became so empowered and confident that that set you on the trajectory of going to set those goals and to reaching those goals that Arnold would be so proud of. And, <laughs> and I'm sure you were so proud of yourself too. And like, you know, screw that doctor, right? Because they missed out on also a learning opportunity for themselves to say yeah. like, let's, you know, this is so interesting and fascinating. Like, let's see what happens with your blood sugars and how we can nail this and how I can help other people who want to be, you know, at this level of competition. So right. How did that moment for you of overcoming that, it sounds like it was very similar to what happened with me and in, in my kind of like epiphany moment where it's like, there are not enough resources out there. Like we're not getting the support that we need. Like what was your path after that? Did you um, start writing for, you know, diabetes magazines right away? Did you have your own personal blog? I was, um, in college, I'd started writing for Health Central, like a, a blog. And I look back at that writing now and I'm like, oh, this is so like vague and unhelpful. Um, but it definitely helped me start to practice my skills of writing about diabetes. But during my senior year of college, I actually wrote this first book, which is, it was self-published by myself and bunch of college students that helped edit it. So it's full of typos. It's a mess. And I can't go back and fix it because the is too old, basically. Um, but I, I am planning on writing a new exercise guide soon. Um, but your diabetes science experiment. And basically, I put as much as I could in really friendly, human, real life diabetes language to help people solve their own. I have these little experiment pages throughout where you, it, to me, every blood sugar that is or isn't what you were hoping it was is the result of variables. And some of those variables we can anticipate really well and some we can only react and some we have to kind of guess and hope our guess is right. But it to me, that's what thriving with type one, regardless of your A1C, really comes down to is when you see a number that isn't what you were hoping that number is, is going to be, instead of like tearing yourself down saying, I suck at this, saying, oh, <laughs> something I did here wasn't quite the right balance of insulin versus food or type of exercise, timing, 
let me take some notes and see if I can pinpoint, pinpoint those variables. And that is really a message I try to teach in everything because whether you're talking about, like when I would go to a powerlifting meet, you know, they, you don't go to powerlifting meets every month. You, they're very spaced out. So I had to learn like, oh, a powerlifting meet, my blood sugar needs are way different than training in the gym because I have this adrenaline from the moment I wake up. And I eventually learned that Novolog wasn't going to cut through the adrenaline, that I needed a boost in my Lantus the night before a powerlifting meet and a pretty big boost. Hmm. And that was the only way I could keep my blood closer, like under 160 instead of 260 throughout a day of a powerlifting meet. But it took a lot of trial and error. And what I didn't do, though, was just get mad and say, this isn't possible and this is just how it's going to be. And whatever, it sucks, but I have to compete with a blood sugar of 260 and that sucks for me. I didn't do that. Instead, I looked at like, what can I still mess with here? And I feel like that can be applied to anything, whether you're talking about pizza, a salad with steak on it, an apple, dawn phenomenon, going for a jog, walking your dog after lunch. Like it doesn't matter what the situation is. Finding the variables that you can tweak and adjust and taking good notes and never beating yourself up for the imperfect blood sugars. Yes. And so aligned with what we do at Risely too. And what I always like to say is like, don't tell me that you can't tell me that you don't know how, right? right? Because it's like, oh, I can't eat that food. Like it just spiked my blood sugar so high last time. It's like, no, you, you can eat it. You just have, there's a correct amount of insulin and yeah, insulin timing to make it. Insulin. Exactly. Yeah. Reverse engineer it. So yeah. that book, by the way, is incredible. I read it oh. probably like 2008, 17, 18, something around that time. And it's like a, it's a textbook, baby. Like it is not a, let's go on our, like a vacation and read it on the no, beach. I but good. <laughs> And you know, again, this is my early writing skills, but no, but but it's such helpful information inside. And I think a great starting point for people to be able to even just start looking at their blood sugar outcomes from the lens of an experiment and right. like not just a finite thing that you did good or bad or you passed or you failed. Right. I never beat myself up for blood sugars. And I might be like, like last night, I so I adopted a, a puppy meal rescue breeder dog on Saturday. And I feel like I've had 10 espressos today because even though she's doing so well, I just, my, my stress level has been amped up for the last three days because we're trying to like really help her adjust. And anybody listening, don't get puppies from the Amish. They are the ones that run puppy mills in this industry. This poor girl was locked in a cage for three years, just breeding puppies over and over. And that's, there's thousands of them. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. And I didn't know that until this weekend. And I've rescued dogs before. Tangent, sorry. But my adrenaline is a lot higher, right? And I thought my insulin wasn't working. But I just, I needed a boost in my Lantus until I can calm down and, and feel like, you know, like I can't control it, right? That mm-hmm. adrenaline going through. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had a bad low last night because I just took too much insulin because I've been so insulin resistant for the last two days, three days. I took too much before bed for dessert and I woke up really low at like 2 a.m. And I did say to my fella this morning, like, yeah, I took a stupid amount of insulin. Looking back, I should have known that was like twice the amount of Novolog that I needed. But I don't then translate that into I suck at this, 
right? It's just like, oops, <laughs> noted, take it easy. Like be gentler with your blood sugar today to help your body recover from how low you were at 2 a.m. And make a note and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's the long game with diabetes because then you're going to drain yourself out so emotionally if it's any right. other way. Right. Um, we're going to have a lot of parents listening to this episode and I want to shift the conversation into understanding like your diagnosis when you were 13 years old. A lot of it seems like the books that you've written are things that you've learned along the way that like, it's almost like, I wish I learned this earlier, right? So I'm going to create it and write it so that other people can benefit from it. And you have your two children's books now, which we're going to go into a little later, but what do you think that the adults around you, uh, family, healthcare team, whatnot, did really good uh, mm -hmm. when you were diagnosed and maybe that initial like first year of diagnosis at 13 years old? And then what do you think that they could have done differently or that you wish they did differently, whether it was like say something or do something? Honestly, my parents rocked it. And I know that everyone's personalities are different. You know, everyone who's diagnosed, personality plays a big role there. I was already kind of a manager but, you know, like I have a twin brother and in kindergarten, I would check on him and make sure he had his lunch or, you know, like I was already kind of that personality at five years old. <laughs> um, but when I was diagnosed at 13, I'll tell you that when I think one of the most important things my parents did that I, when I see it online, I want to just like hug the parent and tell them, you can't fill your kid with self-pity. My parents never felt sorry for me because I had type 1 diabetes. We treated this like, I, and I realized after a couple of days of crying for myself and in the hospital, recovering from DKA at my diagnosis, that, whoa, everybody in life has something. In seventh grade, I could list all my closest friends and like, she lost her mother at age so-and-so. He had a brain tumor removed when he was three and it's affected every moment of his life ever since. She has leukemia. She has severe depression. You know, like I could go through everybody and not a single person, even at this age, right, was free of challenge. And and even I, one of my good friends was one of the most popular pretty girls in school. And I knew there were people that thought her life was perfect because she was beautiful, thin, had the best clothes, right? Movie, movie star, kind of popular high school girl. I knew that her life wasn't perfect. I knew she had her own share of challenges too, real challenges. And so I always want to remind people, if you're looking at someone and you think life is easy for them and life is hard for you and it's not fair, you just don't know that person well enough. And so that mindset of never feeling sorry for myself and my parents never felt sorry for me. They never said, I'm so sorry you have to do this. This is terrible. This is not fair. They never said that. We just got to work of learning about insulin and blood sugars. They trusted me. They let me take on the responsibility. They treated it like it was my disease, not theirs. And today there's CGMs and all these ways to like be this helicopter diabetes parent and freak out over every blood sugar reading. And yes, CGMs provide like so much good, but they also, I feel like keep parents too involved and prevent kids from taking on more of the, I don't even know, not even just the responsibility, but just more of the role of this is my disease. 
Mm. You know, and there were no CGMs when I was a kid. I was the first teenager at Dartmouth Hitchcock Hospital who was allowed to use an insulin pump. And it wow. was like a big deal for them to decide when I came home from summer camp and I said, I want to try an insulin pump. And um, so I just really would encourage parents, teach your children verbally and through your own behavior that they are not a victim because they have been diagnosed with something that is immensely challenging. It's we all have to rise. <laughs> great yeah. game. <laughs> I this. love it. Great plug. Great plug, Ginger. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I told her to do that, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's so interesting because our psychologist, uh, Dr. Dumont, who's on our medical advisory board, she will she comes and does a guest coaching uh, call in our family group coaching program for parents. And what she says to them is like adversity for kids, like you want that. Like you, it builds character and it creates an easier life for them in a way down the line because any other challenge that they have, it's like, it's way easier because they've and dealt they with diabetes. Challenges, right? e- like, exactly. And your I job, just, yeah, right. And she has this analogy where it's like, your job is, is to sit next to them on the bench. It's not to like be like holding them on the bench. It's not to like be on the field with them. It's just to sit next to them and like be there to support them, but not to helicopter them and, you know, to, um, try to take away their pain because even like, it's like what you're saying. It's like, they need to process this on their own. And I love that. And to the, and to the Dexcom point too, I think that's a huge conversation is like, Dexcom share. My mom and dad didn't have it growing up. I don't even think now they know that that exists. Not that Mm -hmm. they would like join it or anything, but they're probably like, wow, like that's so cool because you went to college for four years and studied abroad in Florence, Italy and literally in a different country. And I had no, no, no choice, but to just trust that you got it and you had it at that point. And I can see the benefits of especially keeping an eye on a Dexcom share blood sugar, you know, delivery, you know, I'm using the wrong words, but overnight, you know, when a kid mm-hmm. is sleeping, I get it there. I can't imagine being a parent of a child with type one, but I know that my parents never, diabetes was never a source of argument. It was never a source of me being a disappointment or bad or good or a frustration in my relationship with my parents. And I think when you're helicoptering blood sugars and digging in every day of why this happened, oh my gosh, ah, you're creating this resentment around diabetes that then is going to bleed into your relationship with your child. And I think the only thing they really need to hear for years and years is you're doing a great job. This is so hard, you know? Yeah. And I, I get messages from parents who are like, my teenagers, I went season the sevens or the eights and I saw where yours is and how can I get them to do that? I'm like, whoa, I'm not a teenager. <laughs> I'm a 36 year old woman, right? My A1C wasn't in this range when I was a teenager. And yes, I know some teens get there, but I know they have their parents micromanaging the heck out of it or, uh, you know, other intense things. And that's not necessarily appropriate or necessary for all teens. Yeah. And in a way, even just listening to you talking us talking about this and what we found too in the, in the parent group coaching programs is it's almost like the child getting diagnosed is like, there's a lot of processing, emotional processing that has to happen for the parent separate from the child's diabetes that isn't intertwined and not even just like not, not crying in front of them or, you know, if you're upset or, you know, about their blood sugars or whatever it is, but more so the, like making sure you as a parent are like not feeling that guilt of 
you know, their numbers are hurting because you told them to bolus something, right? Mm. Like uh, managing your own body is hard. We both know that managing somebody else's body is even harder. Yeah. Not beat yourself up the same way I'm talking about not beating myself up for those imperfect numbers. Exactly. I also see, I, I spent, I've spent hours on the phone with newly diagnosed parents, right? Who just, I'm not an official coaching method like you offer, but just people who reach out and their frustration and their anxiety when they see a high blood sugar just through the roof. And what I just want to do is like, and this is over the phone, but if we were in person, I just want to put my hands on their shoulders and say, it's going to be okay. But also this is like the moment to teach your child, oh, we didn't get enough insulin for that hot cocoa. Hot cocoa is not the devil, right? Like she's saying, oh, I can't believe my husband gave her hot cocoa never again. I'm like, no, no, no. Hot cocoa is not the devil. You just don't know how to dose insulin yet for hot cocoa right. at this age. And guess what? Five years from now, she's going to need completely different amount of insulin <laughs> for a hot cocoa. Like it's a constant flux and you got to really think about how are you reacting and how is your child seeing you react and what is it instilling them with, you know, confidence or fear and anxiety and shame? Really, really, really good points. Do you, looking back at age 13, anything else that you feel like you wish people did differently? Your parents did differently. I know they did a great job, but anything that you think that they would have, or even just doctors or healthcare professionals? Um. I mean, I feel like I gained quite a bit of weight in high school, which was the the first few years after my diagnosis and nobody ever really acknowledged it. And weight gain is, can be common for, especially in teenagehood, but once you start insulin and it's all kind of, you know, and you and I both know that taking insulin does not cause weight gain, but there's just that working to balance everything. Mm Mm-hmm. I wish somebody had acknowledged that sooner so I could have started tackling it sooner. Hmm. Did you have a feeling like it was like you noticed it was happening and then you were like, wait, like I, this doesn't feel like my body or did you mostly? I I mean, Oh, for sure. But I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't even know what to do about it. You know what I mean? Like I was active. I worked a ton. I could run eight miles. I would walk to school, which was like six miles away. You know, like it's not like I wasn't living a healthy lifestyle, but something else was off and it it wasn't addressed because we were tiptoeing around it. And that's a how how do you address that in a way that's kind and helpful? I don't know, but that's the only thing I can think of. My parents did an awesome job of really trusting me and. And sometimes I know parents who are listening will probably think, but my child doesn't prove they're trustworthy. Like, well, maybe you need to let them know you trust them. And then they'll be like, whoa, somebody trust me with this? Uh, that might inspire them to step up a little bit more, yeah. right? Like back off and give them room to step up. If you are all over the plate, there's no room for them to stand there. Right. And also give them that space in a low stakes environment. Like maybe you're not saying, all right, go off to summer camp and like you're doing all the bolusing and everything on your own, but maybe it's, Hey, you know, when you're at home and your friends are coming over to do, you know, a sleepover or whatever, like I'm going to kind of stay in the background and I'm going to let you manage your diabetes. And then you're there as a backup if anything goes wrong. But that's how you build that confidence as a parent, I feel like, and how they're able to build that, like feel that trust from, from you. So another thing that 
I think can be helpful is if you don't, the minute they get home, they go, how are your blood sugars today? Or why did that happen at lunch? But if you have like a set chat time, family chat time about diabetes each week, so that mm-hmm. it's not this daily thing that they have to dread looking at and feeling mm-hmm. crummy about. And instead it's like, this is our de- devoted time where we look at how things are going this week and we talk in a, a very positive light, you know? Yes, 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 of course. So you spent the first four books that you've written in your career focused on type ones themselves and education and support for them. And now I have my two books here. I love them so much. <laughs> you brought, uh, broke out into children's picture books and yeah. you have two books now, a type one diabetes picture book on when I go low, you co or you, you wrote it. And then it was illustrated by Mike Lawson. Yes. And then uh, the second one that's ink and hide my T1D, which I love so much. And, you know, I, I was able to read both of them last night before bed. <laughs> they were a quick read, <laughs> a yes. quick read for me. Um, kids for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to see, you know, what was inside and I love that so much. I'm really curious to talk. Let's talk about the, um, the, when I go low book, because I think that that's a question that I get a lot of my DMS too, of like from parents, like, how does it feel when your blood sugars, cause I post my blood sugars a lot. Like, how does it feel when your blood sugar is like that, when it's low or when it's that high? Or I said once like, oh my gosh, I've been you know, low for like, I was low for a few hours. Like, I just couldn't get my blood sugar up that day. And I was like, I literally feel like I've been like hit by a train, like that, like kind of lethargic tiredness after you come up for that low. And somebody was like, Oh, like, I didn't know my kid, like may still feel it after, you know, they come up from it. So I think that like, let's yeah. talk about first what inspired the book itself and that specific topic. And then we'll go into, I want to hear like you explain what a low feels like to you, what a high feels like, and, you know, just give some parents some insight. Sure. sure. Um, I mean, so what really inspired is I had children of my own. I have a five and a seven year old, two little girls. And um, I was, so I was reading a lot of children's books that I wished I could edit and rewrite and fix, you know, because I'm just picky as a writer. And my daughter, one of my daughters really loves writing and definitely has that same little writing brain. And so we started drawing pictures together and um, I was trying to draw my, I have very limited drawing skills. I have like one character, I call it a squishy monster. And that's all I can do. <laughs> that's it. Um, and I do have those on Amazon, but they're not diabetes related. They're squishy monster books and they're just to entertain my kids. Um, but you can buy them if you feel the need. Um, but I knew that I needed a great artist to help me create a book for kids with type one. And I know, and you know, that one of the scariest parts of type one is low blood sugars, right? And kids with type one, even if they're diagnosed at three years old, it can take until they're like 10 or 12 sometimes to feel the symptoms of a low. And some kids might be able to feel it, but not have the words because mom and dad don't have it. And so I really wrote it to help kids find the words, like be able to label how they feel and then express those words to mom and dad so they can ask for help sooner and catch the low sooner. So it's Mm. it's really a safety thing, right? But we painted it in this really colorful, upbeat. It's We don't talk about it in a scary way in the book. We just talk about the symptoms and how it feels. And he goes through his neighborhood and happens to meet five other animals who have type one and they all have different feelings that they 
have when they're low and they and he goes through the neighborhood and then realizes, oh my gosh, I've been walking all day. I feel low. And he, and so that's really the point. And what Mike actually, Mike has type one too. And um, he's incredible. And um, he, his favorite thing about it is the title says when I go low, not if I go low. Mm. So acknowledging that, Hey, we all have lows and it's okay. That word choice is so imperative. And we also need like a book like this for adults because yes. fear of lows is something that, man, it runs deep and wide. And I love that at the same time, though, this is you know a book for children because maybe it could set them on the trajectory of not having a fear of low um, block them later on and be a challenge to you know having healthy numbers and a lower A1C because right. that's a lot of what we see in adults. When, you know, we work on both sides of the spectrum with the parents mm -hmm. and the kids and the adults. And so what we try to do in our parent coaching programs is say, look, here is a list of all the challenges that these adults are coming to us with after 20 years having diabetes, maybe getting di diagnosed in childhood. How can we get ahead of them now? Right. So I, I really, I really like that, that idea. And, you know, I'm wondering how I, I could scroll back and I, and I didn't catch this last night, but how did you decide between the wording of how to describe what a low feels like, because obviously like, it's kind of like describing to a, a five-year-old describing to a, another five-year-old, like, Hey, I have diabetes. Oh, what's right. diabetes? Ah, uh, like, I don't know how to describe it. So, so what did you, I'm yeah. I'm going for you <laughs> because this doesn't, this doesn't include all the um, symptoms that we list. Each character lists symptoms like I'm feeling dizzy, 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 hungry, 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 angry, angry, angry. Um, okay. There's a few others, but what in both books include is also a song that my kids who are not people with diabetes, right? Um, love. And it says, when I go low, I feel so, so, so wibbly wobbly, flibbly flobbly. When I go low, that's how I know it's time to eat my special treat. I eat my treat to get back on my feet, feeling ready to play for the rest of the day. And then he gets home and he says, I'm feeling shaky and dizzy and mad and hungry. So I just tried to pick the four that I feel are the strongest symptoms you feel that kids would understand. Yeah. I think you did a really good job with that because it, it is hard. And I, I think even in the ain't going to hide my T1D book, there was, there's a part where you describe where, what diabetes, what diabetes is, right? Like there's one of the mm -hmm. characters that comes up and says, well, what is, what does that mean? Yeah, it's with the scary raccoons. And she said, it's not weird. It's what helps Sherry stay healthy. Yeah, said Sherry, finding the courage to speak up. I have type 1 diabetes. This thing on my arm helps me stay healthy like you. Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Just like so simple, so straightforward, because yeah. I think helping exactly like what you said, giving the kids the language to be able to communicate to yeah. their peers who don't understand what a low right. feels like, or don't understand what diabetes is or why they're taking yeah. their, their, their pump or their, you know, insulin in their, in their shots. That's, that's so important and going to be really helpful. And, you know, it's as a parent, I'm very big on like, I don't sugarcoat anything for my children. And like, this is how we communicate about this. This is what you do. I don't, I just so blunt with them. Um, but I also read these to them and it helps them understand my diabetes better, you know? And if you are, I, we've also sent them to classrooms. And so that even the kids around the child with type one can understand diabetes better and it helps normalize it. And mm. I'm going to hide my T1D is about Sherry building the confidence to wear her diabetes tech visibly on her body at school.
it really is about framing it as, and I, I've believed this philosophy for a long time, is if you wear your diabetes with shame and you're embarrassed by it, other people are going to see it as something that's embarrassing. If you wear it as, I wear this, I deal with this every day, and I rock it, they're going to see it as like, whoa, that's pretty impressive, right? And it's all about how you present it and all about how you think about it yourself. And so Sherry's song is, ain't going to hide my T1D, ain't going to hide my T1D. It's part of me, as you can see, and it ain't going to stop what I can be. Yes. This is like a kid's bop, T1D edition. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> kid's bop, like 253 uh, T1D edition. Oh, yeah. So good. Oh, I love both of these. And I would say, what would you say like age, age group for um, like who this would be good for? Um, I feel like from, you know one to maybe eight or nine, my seven-year-old is starting to learn how to read it herself. So it's actually written in basic enough language that it can be a good learn to read yourself, you know, read it to your younger sibling, read it to mom and dad, if you're on that older end of the spectrum. Absolutely. So let's talk about what do your lows feel like in just like adult language and what do your, what do your highs feel sure. like? Um, and then I'll share mine as well. I want to see if they're similar or if they're different. Okay. Um, my lows in the middle of the night lows, I always wake up really sweaty. That's how I know I'm low in the middle of the night. Or if it's a more mild low, I just wake up and I'm like, why can't I fall asleep? Why am I awake? It's 2am. I'm so tired. And then I think like, I should check my blood sugar. And during the day, if I am exercising and I'm going low, there's this little message in my brain. It's so subtle. That's just like, I'm tired and I want to lay down, you know, (laughs) I love exercising. So that's a pretty weird message to be hearing. And um, I used to, when I did a lot more walking on a treadmill instead of outside, my thighs would get tingly. Mm. And I'd say also my brain just starts feeling like kind of weak and having trouble focusing. Those are like the really subtle symptoms. Obviously those classic symptoms where it's, I'm really low. My lip might go numb. My tongue might start tingling. What are your low symptoms? Yeah. Similar. I will always wake up my body. I, I'm grateful because not everybody has that, but to wake up in the middle of the night, I'm right. if I'm really low, it's sweating is number one yeah. symptom or just kind of, you know, disoriented waking up uh, during the daytime. I don't have too many lows during the day. I kind of catch it before it comes and I'm on a pump. So my basils are really, really tight. But mm-hmm. if I do, it's, yeah, just kind of catching that low and feeling just like a little bit disoriented and being like, okay, like my brain can't focus on what it's focusing on. Like I need some, yeah. some, some sugar. And then highs, I see just like way more, um, like way more irritability and like mm-hmm. anger. Like mm-hmm. I get very just like, angry and irritable. And I'm just like, I literally just like can't deal with anyone or like it's so to be a kid and have those symptoms too, which I did, it's hard because you're, you know, you're acting out and my mom would always be like, you better hope your blood sugar is high right now. (laughs) Or you're like, you're going to your room kind of thing. Um, But, but yeah, I would say those are, and just like kind of like a headache, I would say is like just like a headache and this like brain fog. Mm -hmm. Um, But to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, like those sometimes last, like I've had times where my pump has came out in the middle of the nighttime. And so when I'm high for an extended period of time, like that's really the only time, like I would really, really be high for an extended period of time, like, you know, four or five, six hours. Um, if my CGM didn't wake me up, that's something where for the next 24 hours, I like 
just want to sleep and I'm so lethargic and I just feel like I got like two hours of sleep the night before, even if I slept through the entire night. Right. And the same from like those bad, bad lows where it's like, you know, fifties or forties, like you come up, but it's almost like you're like, you just came out of the sauna and like ran a marathon. And it's just like this thing that sticks around where it's just like, you got to sit down. Yeah. And take it easy. And I do also, if I'm like this adrenaline highs that I'm experiencing last few days, I, I keep getting myself back to a hundred, but then it's like spiking again, as I realized what was causing it. I thought I was messing something up, you know, before I realized it was, I needed a boost in my Lantus. Part of what I like to do is in my head of like, okay, you're high. This helps me not rage bolus. You're high and take some insulin and then go do your normal activity. And I walk my dog three times a day. So that certainly can help if I'm having a high and just like chill and try to just do your normal activity and to channel out the anger and frustration a little bit sometimes, unless my kids are home and frustrated me, then it's like, Oh, I'm high and I need to really control the right, effect. Right. You're like, I can't do math homework right now. Yeah. <laughs> not at a time like or this. Ever, or yeah. I was going to say, or not at a time like ever. <laughs> Diabetes math. That's all I can do. Oh my gosh. So funny. So my last question for you, what is, how do you hope, for these books to be used. I know you said, obviously, like parents reading it to the kids. You mentioned though, going to schools and reading it to other 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 classmates. Do you think that this could be beneficial for like a parent to bring into the teacher and say like, could we do, could I do a book reading with the rest of the class as a way, you know, especially like uh, the fall semester is, is coming back for, for kids and to be able yeah. to kind of like at the start of the school year without people being like, what's on his arm or her arm or what is, right. you know, what's going yeah. on? Why I does mean, she I, have a special snack? In my, my, my children don't even have kids with type one in their classroom as far as I know. And I put them in their backpack and give them to the teachers. So That's I great. think it would be in having the parent come in would be even better. Right. Um, this was during COVID. So I wasn't welcome in the classroom, <laughs> but um yeah, I think it would be great for that or giving a copy to the school nurse. And also just it would help the teachers learn the mindset to have when discussing their student with type one, you know, talking about type one diabetes with that student throughout their school day for the whole year, right? It helps paint a picture of positive language and calm reactions to things and that whole... I. Yeah, I think it could be used in a lot of different ways, not just at home. I think that's so great. And now there's, you know, I think it's like Pixar and the Animal Crossing game. Like there's, you know, Omnipods and uh, different technology being shown. So it's it's showing up in mainstream media. So we love it. But Ginger, tell everyone where they can get these two books and where they can follow you. And yeah, plug yourself. You can find everything at gingerviera.com. Just make sure you get all the vowels in Viera in there and you'll find me. And I link to everything I've ever written on gingerviera.com. All my books are on there. All these books are on Amazon, pregnancy with type one diabetes and dealing with diabetes burnout and emotional eating with diabetes um, are all on Amazon. And I work for Beyond Type One. So that's where I do most of my writing now. Um, also done a lot of writing and highly recommend checking out T1D Exchange and the work that they do. Diabetes Strong. There's so many. Diatribe. There's so many now. <laughs> she, you're everywhere. Like I said, you were like the first blog or something that I ever found. Find me on Instagram. I'm always um, available to share 
link. Usually people send me messages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook saying, how do you deal with X? And I'm like, here's three articles I've written on that topic. <laughs> very specific. And they offer, you know, real applied this to your life guidelines. Absolutely. Well, Ginger, thank you so much for being on. It was such a pleasure and I wish you all the luck in the world with these books. And I know they're going to be, make such an impact on all the kids' lives. Thank you for having me, Lauren. Thank you for what you're doing. I have to tell you before you stop recording that what my first impressions that I appreciated of what you're doing online is normalizing normal eating and that it is okay to not be on some crazy strict diet and to just figure out how much insulin you need for any type of food. And it's okay. So thank Thank you for constantly putting that out. Well, thank you so much. And it comes from the, you know, five years that I deprived myself of pizza and bread. And so ending up here on the other side, I'm like, I'm going to talk about it all the time because you don't have to be on a strict diet. I tell people all the time, I am on zero diet. I just try to eat mostly whole food because I know I feel best, but I eat dessert every day and my health is fantastic and I've never felt better and it's okay. Yes. Oh, so good. I love that we're ending with that message, Ginger. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Lauren. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. When I was finished interviewing Ginger, I asked her if she'd be open to doing a podcast giveaway for the community for whoever wanted to get their hands on two of her new children's picture books. And she said yes. So if you enter to win... We're going to choose three people to win Ain't Gonna Hide My T1D and When I Go Low. And this is something that you can use with your child, read to them, um, have them read themselves. You can give it to other family members. Maybe if your kids have cousins around their same age to more normalize type 1 diabetes and help them understand what it is. Give it to teachers, um, nurses. This is is something that we want to get into the hands of as many people as possible. So all you have to do to enter the giveaway is go to the homepage of the Reclaim Your Rise podcast, whether it's on Apple or Spotify, and rate it preferably five stars. But just rate it period whatever stars you think we deserve and second go to my instagram page my personal one lauren underscore bongiorno and comment and like today's instagram post where i am highlighting ginger's books and you'll also get to see the cover art of the um of the books it's so animated and colorful and just perfect so thank you so much for listening and tuning in today and i'll see you next week